state has to respect different religious communities in Sri Lanka. It cannot encroach on their worship or sites. It has to change its rhetoric. And remember that Sri Lanka is a plural society where all communities need to feel their rights are upheld. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today we're going to discuss religious freedom conditions in Sri Lanka, an ethnically and religiously diverse country with a recent history of intercommunal violence. Buddhists account for about 70% of the population, followed by Hindus, Muslims, Roman Catholics, and other Christian denominations. In the decade following the end of a civil war in 2009, conflict among the various ethnic and religious groups has remained at a heightened level and has affected political, social, and economic life in the country. In 2021, USERF released the country update on Sri Lanka, which touched on topics such as the enforcement of blasphemy laws, the use of a law called the Prevention of Terrorism Act to target Muslims, and online hate speech by Buddhist nationalist groups. Although Sri Lanka is not currently among the countries USERF recommends for designation as a country of particular concern or for inclusion on the State Department's special watch list, that report last year outlined some of the country's troubling signs of deteriorating religious freedom conditions. And starting in March of this year, thousands of Sri Lankans have taken to the street to protest the government amid a critical economic crisis, which has left the island nation facing inflation and fuel shortages. These protests culminated in the resignation of President Gotabaya Raja Paksa last month, and now there's a new leader in place, and he's serving his first term as president after serving as prime minister five separate times since the 1990s. Now, to explore these dynamics further and to better understand the range of religious freedom issues at stake in Sri Lanka, we're fortunate to have with us today Sharika Thiranagama, an associate professor of anthropology at Stanford University. Welcome, Sharika. Thank you so much, Dwight. I'm delighted to be on the podcast and to sort of talk your listeners through some of these issues. And, you know, the, it is very complicated in Sri Lanka because you have essentially a plurality of religious communities and also a variety of military actors, especially most latterly the Sri Lankan state that have played a very deeply problematic role in managing um, religious tensions between communities. So. You know, it's been very difficult to make clear lines between ethnicity and religion in Sri Lanka. And I thought I would just start off with just a quick snapshot into that. So your listeners may know the majority ethnic community in Sri Lanka are Sinhalese, the majority of whom are Buddhist with a very small Christian minority. And Buddhism is very central to Sinhalese, to Sinhalese identity and is enshrined in the 1972 constitution as the national religion of Sri Lanka. Now the minorities that have been involved in the civil war 
um, uh, of a variety of different religions. So Sri Lankan Tamils, one of the country's major ethnic minorities and at the heart of the civil war, predominantly Hindu, but they have a very strong 15% who are Christian. And unlike the Sinhalese, while Hinduism is the majority religion until quite recently, and I can talk about why it's changing recently, but in the past, Tamilness across religion has been more important than an exclusively Hindu identity. So, um, though, I mean, Christians, both Catholics and Protestants have undoubtedly shaped themselves within a Hindu world. And this is changing now, partly because of stronger influences from Hindu nationalism in India, but it wasn't part of the civil war identity. So there was always an asymmetry in relation to religion in the civil war where Buddhism was incredibly important to Sinhalese community, but Tamilness was important to Sri Lankan Tamils. Now, Sri Lankan Muslims who were also central to civil war are both an ethnicity and a religion. A non-practicing Muslim would still describe themselves as ethnically Muslim. It's similar to maybe how Jews would characterize themselves. And hill country Tamils, descendants of an indentured laboring communities brought by the British to the island are another affected uh, minority and they're predominantly Hindu with a strong and growing Christian minority. So you can see already there's a kind of plurality of religious communities, some where religion is central to identity and others where it's part of ethnic identity as well. Now throughout the civil war, Tamil minorities face very systematic discrimination from majority singular Buddhist community and the state. And we saw consistent repression of minority rights, land grabs, disappearances. But since the end of the war in 2009, we've seen a lot of new attacks now focused on Sri Lankan Muslims, which is what the State Department brought out. Amnesty International has just brought out a new report a few a month ago on this, on the kind of successive anti-Muslim riots and discrimination since 2009. And this sort of came about because of kind of an unholy pact between a triumphant Sri Lankan state and ruling politicians and emerging radical Buddhist orders such as the Bodhu Balasana, who drew from a longer tradition of anti-Muslim rhetoric by Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka, and they increasingly call for violence and harassment of minorities, particularly Muslims. A good analogy would be what's happening in Myanmar, for example. So it was when these protests start, it was with great trepidation, actually that many minorities saw the protests. Everybody was suffering and the economic collapse united all Sri Lankans in its devastation because everyone had the same circumstances of rising food prices, scarcity of fuel, rolling power cuts. At the same time, there is a kind of history of divided experience in Sri Lanka where minorities have had very different experiences of Sri Lanka's politicians. They've had faced kind of very little dividends from the big projects. They've faced an enormous impact from militarization and law enforcement, and as a whole, just have a greater fear and insecurity in relation to the state and majority communities. But when the protests actually started and they continued, and we've had thousands of people in Sri Lanka participate in the protests. And in fact, many Buddhist monks have also participated, but these protests have remained largely free of religious conflict and have in fact expanded the possibilities for Sri Lankans to talk about their divided experiences. So Muslim protesters from, you know, who had suffered immensely the Muslim community in the last few years, they protested in the middle of Ramadan, but they broke their fast collectively at the protest. They gave food to non-Muslim protesters. There was no reprisals. Eid was celebrated collectively. For the first time ever since the end of the war, even though it was a small group, a collection of protesters, including many Sinhalese in the main 
Gulfis area in Colombo commemorated the deaths of thousands of Tamils in the last battle of the Civil War. In um, Hill Country, Tamils came to protest. They put on rituals that really marked their Hindu identity and their tradition of strong workers' protests. And so what you and the, you know, the protests were attended by clergy from all of Sri Lanka's religions, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus. So, you know, Catholic nuns came frequently to protest to protect the protesters from the police and the state. They were trying to charge them. They kept vigil at night. They stood between the protesters and the police to stop tear gassing. So, you know, what does this mean? Does this mean that suddenly there was this anti-religious violence against minorities and racism, and now there isn't any? Are protesters non-violent and minority loving all of a sudden? I mean, of course not. The divisions in Sri Lanka are deep. And the histories of violence and racism are long, intimate, and very everyday. But what the protests have shown people like me is that change is always possible. And it's very clear from the remarkable lack of communal violence in the last few months that violence up to this point has been very organized. So anti-minority and, and religious and violence against religious minorities has been clearly fostered and organized and made possible by the state, the active involvement of law enforcement and military security and radical Buddhist monks and lay leaders supported by politicians. When you don't have that active organization, yes, we see ongoing racism and everyday miscommunications and tensions and inequalities, but we don't see large scale collective violence. A, a, good, you know, a good example of that is that in uh, anti-Muslim right a few years ago in Digana, even though it was supposed to be popular protest, the first attack on the mosque, first you had a Buddhist monk um, asking people to charge the mosque. The next day, it was in fact the special task force, the paramilitary police force of the state that went into the mosque itself. So, I mean, this tells us that action, organization, state sponsorship of violence is the major ingredient of religious persecution in Sri Lanka because the state has not protected minorities but done the very opposite. Because when we see protesters um, kind of protest against the state, we don't see this kind of large scale communal violence against minorities. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, uh, and thanks for that context, um, there has been over the last several years, you know, you see government officials you know, aligned with the ruling family at the time, you know, stoking racism, ethnic conflict, anti-Muslim sentiment among the Sinhalese population. They also clearly tolerated the dissemination of hate speech by popular hardline Buddhist monks uh, against some of these religious minority groups. My question to you is, is, do you expect a new president to use similar tactics and how likely will these hardline Buddhist groups continue to operate on social media without any pushback uh, from government authorities? I mean, I think that that's a really good question, Dwight. And there's both a very specific question, answer in relation to Sri Lanka and a broader question, which we can see worldwide, including in the US around democracy, which is the entwined problem of the responsibility of politicians, in fact, around um, racism and persecution of religious minorities and the great responsibility that state and politicians actually play in either fostering or preventing hate speech and the enormous ability of social media proliferation and the lack of regulation in, on social media of hate speech. And I think we face that in every democracy right now. In Sri Lanka, I do fear that Ranil Vikramasinghe, the new president, 
will not actually change, but will use the same um, tactics to, you know, as you say, to fit his agenda. He is, in fact, even though he was from the opposing um, party to the Rajapaksa regime, they put him forward as prime minister, even though, in fact, I don't know if you, we, we didn't mention it in the intro, but Ranil Vikramasinghe lost his parliamentary seat in the most recent elections. He's only in parliament because his party nominated him to the party list. So he's not, he has, you know, the people did not even elect him in an, and now he's the president. So the Rajapaksas installed him in place because they see him as a natural ally to them. I mean, for a lot of Western viewers, he's presented as kind of Western facing, he's thought of as reconciling. And that's because he's this English speaking, genteel, very elite figure. He's from one of Sri Lanka's most powerful political families. He entered parliament in the 70s. His uncle was a former president of Sri Lanka, J.R. Jawadna, who's known for presiding over some very serious anti-Tamil riots and installed his nephew, Ranil Vikramasinghe. He's been involved with every president who's committed mass political violence. He was also prime minister. He was also under President Premadasa too. He is thought of as a peacemaker because he was uh, negotiated the last ceasefire with the LTT in 2002. So he's thought of as different from the Rajapaksas who ended the war militarily. But really, I mean, what I have to say is that there's a currency in Sri Lanka to politics. What wins? So in, prior to the end of the war, whichever party could bring peace to a war-weary and exhausted Sri Lanka would win. And that meant that you know, politicians were elected on bringing peace and the other party in opposition would try and torpedo the attempts of the ruling party to bring peace. And this happened so sometimes Ranil Vikramasinghe was the one bringing peace, sometimes his party was the one torpedoing it. Now, after the war ended, the political currency change. It was no longer about peace and even some form of reconciliation with minority. The Rajapaksas made the new political currency of elections, persecution of minorities, expansion of state militarization, promotion of Buddhism, and promises of endless security. Right Now, Vikramasinghe, he doesn't have any politics of his own. He wasn't elected. So he only wants to stay in power. And this is the kind of currency that has worked now for a long time. So this is really what he's going to use. He's interested in securitization, in Buddhism, in persecution of minorities, because that's what won the Rajapaksa, the most recent election. And since his official election by MPs, we've seen um, emergency rule installed in Sri Lanka, protesters arrested, bodies are turning up every day on Sri Lanka's beaches. It's a very frightening time. There's a warrant of arrest out on many student leaders, on a Catholic priest, Jivanta Pires, who was involved in the protests. There is no doubt in my mind that Vikramasinghe wants to show a face to the West of one side, but in Sri Lanka, he's brutally consolidating his power. And it's a power which has to rest on military persecution because unlike the Rajapaksas who were popularly elected, he wasn't. So it's actually in his interest and like, all the major politicians do, in, for Sinhalese politicians to really make it, you have to have links with very prominent Buddhist orders and monks. That's what it's been like in the last decade or so. So I really don't see him restraining anti-minority rhetoric, but in fact, using it further. Yeah, that's that sounds unfortunate. Thank you for unpacking that, really. But again, it sounds like he's playing to 
two audiences the external as you're saying to the west and then what he's trying to do to consolidate power which then of course impacts the minorities and in fact there have been several incidents in recent years uh, in regions outside of colombo in which government entities such as uh, the departments of archaeology or forestry and even the military as you've alluded to have displaced hindu and muslim religious sites to erect buddhist shrines so uh, my question to you is how and why are these displacements occurring and, and what is their wider significance if there is at all? Yeah, I mean, this is part of this longer picture and it's good that you ask that because these developments have occurred not only under the Rajapaksas, but under the 2015 regime when Ranil was the, Ranil Vikramasinghe was the prime minister too. So one thing to understand about Sri Lanka is that Sri Lankan Buddhists see it as a Buddhist sacred country with a variety of sacred sites across, across the country. And they have a very, Sri Lanka has a very long history of Theravada Buddhism, a kind of Buddhism, which links it to Thailand and Myanmar. And this, the kind of history of Buddhism as is told in Sri Lanka, especially by monastic tracts, it links kingly sovereignty to upholding Buddhism. And in contemporary Sri Lanka, various governments have portrayed such a duty as central to the state. And since independence, minorities such as Muslims and Tamils who have been in Sri Lanka for centuries and centuries, and where there's a very complicated you know, prior religious past, um, they've been portrayed as immigrants and Sinhalese Buddhists have been portrayed as sons of the soil. And in actuality, while ethnic identities have hardened in recent colonial and post-colonial periods, especially through the civil war, Sri Lanka has always been a very ethnically heterogeneous mixed population. It's had a lot of overlapping religious practices. Hindu gods are worshiped within Buddhist practices. The Rajapaksas, like a lot of Sinhalese politicians, they erect Buddhist shrines everywhere, including on Hindu and Muslim sacred shrines, but they're regular devotees and visitors at the Indian Hindu temple of Tirupati. They go every year. So despite this kind of more plural history and set of practices, in recent times, Sri Lanka's massive military expansion and the requisition of land as high security land is a kind of enabled land grabs by military and forestry departments. And they've done these land grabs by also consecrating them as sacred Buddhist shrines. So, you know, the example you gave of the archaeological commission is very important. So in 2020, Gotabaya Rajapaksa appointed an 11 member presidential task force to conduct a kind of a survey of archaeological sites in the Eastern Promise, which is Tamil and Muslim area and to preserve these sites. Now, immediately this, this task force is composed of um, some academics, Buddhist priests, including some really notorious one. And it was chaired, not by an academic, but by the, um, the secretary to the Ministry of Defense, Major General Kamal Gunaratna. Now this guy, Kamal Gunaratna, is accused of war crimes in the 2009 end of war. He commanded the 53rd Division of the Sri Lankan Army, who was supposed, who were alleged to have executed captured fighters. So now you have this, one of the most notorious army generals is in charge of the presidential task force. A year later, they said, oh, there are 2000 sites in the Eastern province, which we'll have to examine. And when you examine an archeological site, according to the task force, you also take over the land from it. 
So they have been identifying with the shrines. They're not maintaining Hindu and Muslim sacred shrines. They identify them. And if there is a Muslim and Hindu shrine there, they often build a Buddhist stupa over it, which then makes it as Buddhist sacred shrine. And you know, the military has really profited also from running pilgrimages to these new sites. It, it's never had any compunction in devastating existing religious sites. A very famous Catholic church in Northern Manna was regularly bombed by the army during the war. There's a lot of growing anti-evangelical Christian feeling also among Buddhist monks. So the army in a way has become really central to upholding and um, running commercial enterprises in supporting archeological, new archeological sites, pilgrimages, shrines, um, you know, there's a very famous example. I'll, I'll stop there. There's in in um, 2013, the, these monks said there was this very, there's an ancient archaeological site in Kuragala. And there's also a Muslim Sufi shrine there. So these monks started in 2017 saying that the mosque should be demolished because it's actually only a Buddhist shrine and the Muslims have taken it. Then the mosque was demolished and it's set up. And in May, 2022, in the middle of this, enormous economic collapse, the state held an incredibly lavish opening ceremony to unveil a new Buddhist stupa there and a ginormous um, lion. It was attended by Gotabaya Rajapak. So that shows you their priorities and how they see Buddhism as a kind of central weapon in their sort of um, in, in, in their strategy and how important the army are to it. And, it's important to know that at the end of the civil war, Sri Lanka didn't demilitarize its army, it expanded it. The army now is bigger than it was prior to during the war years. And they do all kinds of commercial enterprises. So this is a very complicated and unholy pact. And it's really about, and in this sense, sacredness has been about mingling land and religion in such a way as to erase Hindu and Muslim religious presence and to erase them as belonging to Sri Lanka as core residents with claims to Sri Lanka and install them instead as kind of second class supplicants or immigrants in a sacred singular Buddhist country. And actually this is a profound betrayal of Sri Lanka's actual religious heritage. You know, the sacred site of Kathragama in Sri Lanka, which is sacred for Buddhists for the worship of the god Skanda. Skanda is also the Hindu god Muruhan. It's sacred for Hindus, Vedas, Buddhists. And in that sacred shrine, it also has an ancient Sufi shrine from the Iraqi Rafi order. This, that is Sri Lanka. It is a plural place with many religious communities and overlapping worship. And we've seen some really dangerous things happening in the last few decades. Yes, indeed. And and clearly, the uh, the current political and economic uh, crisis is is still going to be the priority for a while for the uh, Wickramasinghe government. But but there's so much more work to be done in terms of reconciliation in, in the wake of the country's civil war, as you've as you've touched on. And this reconciliation uh, should include improving relations between ethnic and and religious groups and preventing uh, future escalations uh, of intercommunal violence. Uh, now, in your view. Uh, is there anything that the U.S. government could do, or for that matter, the broader international community, but in particular the U.S. government, uh, to help bring about positive change? Is there any kind of aid or support that, in your view, would be effective to help this reconciliation, uh, particularly from the angle of the religious uh, and ethnic groups? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the international community and the US in particular have an enormously important role to play right now, now more than even at any other time, because we can see such a schism between popular feeling in the country and the Sri Lankan state and a new mood change in Sri Lanka among its people to thinking deeply about I mean, maybe not everyone, but there is some conversation about reconciliation, about religious freedom, about coexistence, when there hasn't been for a while. So there's a lot um, anyway to do in relation to reconciliation in Sri Lanka, and much of it has to do with the state both protecting religious minorities and also actually withdrawing from active stoking of anti-minority sentiments and persecution of religious groups. And so, you know, what I'm suggesting is what Human Rights Watch has suggested, the State Department, the Amnesty International, the state has to respect different religious communities in Sri Lanka. It cannot encroach on their worship or sites. It has to change its rhetoric. Um, remember that Sri Lanka is a plural society where all communities need to feel their rights are upheld. And this, and this can really be only done through concrete legislative and constitutional change that restores rights. Well, certainly a lot of food for thought. Thanks for uh, putting forward a number of ideas as far as uh, what the U.S. could do and raise and, and uh, push forward. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it right here. I want to thank Sharika for joining us today and sharing her insights and expertise about religious freedom concerns and U.S. policy towards Sri Lanka. You can find our most recent uh, country update issued last year on Sri Lanka on our website. As always, thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on Serve Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.